In general, I'm a huge fan of museums, and if they have something to do with history, even better. Fortunately, there are many great museums to visit throughout the state, and I've dropped plugs for several of them over the past few years. But today, I want to remind everyone living in the Valley of the Sun of the one that can be found in the heart of Phoenix, the Arizona Capitol Museum. While there are many things among the various displays and exhibits that I could highlight here, what might have been my favorite part is also what's going to be our topic for today. On the upper floors of the original historic Capitol building in the northern wing are the original State House chambers. But instead of just generically preserving the room, the museum has opted to preserve it at a particular moment in time, October 1910. Everything is set up to show as much as possible the scene that took place in the fall of that year as men from across the territory gathered for one of the most momentous political meetings in Arizona's history. We are going to talk about the meeting itself in a future episode, but today it's time to cover what brought everyone there. Because after years of being ignored, put off, and denied, the people of Arizona finally got what they wanted. But right after that, it was time to answer some very pressing questions. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 165, What Kind of Constitution Do You Want? Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we talked about the construction of the Roosevelt Dam, which, when it was dedicated in 1911, was one of Arizona's grandest achievements. However, that accomplishment would be eclipsed less than a year after former President Theodore Roosevelt ceremonially opened the sluice gates, when the territory finally achieved what basically had been the goal ever since American settlers had set up shop there. That's right. After decades of false starts and hard politicking, it's time for Arizona to take its place as a full-fledged state. Now, it's been a few episodes since we talked about the push for statehood, so let's recap where we left things. Starting in 1901, there was serious political agitation for Arizona to put another star on the flag, but their efforts were hampered by the territory's free silver stance, a national political scene that was wary of admitting new states that could swing democratic, and national issues that pitted western attitudes against eastern attitudes. Also, Republican Senator Albert J. Beveridge of Indiana stood as a bulwark against any attempts to let more Democrats into the Senate on his watch. But the greatest insult of all was the idea that persisted for several years that Arizona could become a state only after it was combined with, gag me with a spoon, New Mexico. For any New Mexican listeners out there, that was their attitude. I think you guys are great. And though the jointure idea was championed by President Roosevelt, who put pressure on Arizona Governor Joseph Kibbe to accept it, a referendum in both Arizona and New Mexico defeated the notion. 
Toward the end of his presidency, even Roosevelt seemed to be coming around to the idea of finally letting the two territories join as separate states. The only problem was that it was at the end of his presidency. He left office in March 1909 and was followed by his hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft. Like most Republicans of the day, Taft was not too keen on admitting new states, which were sure to swing Democratic. As I said last time, one source went so far as to say that he viewed the efforts as a progressive plot. However, things started softening a bit when, in the 1908 election, Arizona decided to not return Marcus Aurelius Smith to Washington, D.C. as its congressional delegate, but instead elected Ralph H. Cameron. Critically, Cameron was a Republican, which helped assuage fears that Arizona would be nothing more than a Democratic stronghold. Taft himself softened his view, and historian Howard R. Lamar says that there is some evidence that he appointed jurist Richard E. Sloan as Arizona's governor because he was someone who could make the necessary legal adjustments to make the transition to statehood. Just as one of my patented asides, Sloan was actually the judge that presided over the Wom payroll robbery case in 1889, the same case where Marcus Aurelius Smith had defended the accused Gila Valley robbers. Sloan had been in Washington, D.C. when Taft appointed him, and arrived in Arizona in late April, stopping first in Prescott, where he was introduced to an enthusiastic crowd by Mayor Morris Goldwater. And in his remarks, Sloan raised hopes that now was the time to finally get the statehood they all craved. He would say, quote, I bring back from Washington assurance of the highest and most trustworthy character that my term in office must of necessity be short, that statehood will not be delayed longer than may be necessary after Congress meets in December next. It is therefore important that every citizen should give some thought and attention to those things which must be done in preparation for this event. It is a time for unselfish and patriotic effort on the part of every citizen. End quote. Historian Jay Wagner notes that when Sloan took office on May 1, 1909, there was no legislature in session, so he could concentrate all his efforts on the question of statehood. In his annual report to the Secretary of the Interior that year, the governor wrote that he hoped that Congress would soon pass an enabling act. Things continued to look up when President Taft visited Arizona in October 1909. During his time there, he expressed his sympathy for the people of the territory and their desire to fully join the Union, and he even floated that he would be in favor of the idea. The caveat, however, is that Taft warned them that if the proposed state constitution contained radical provisions, he would definitely veto. Here he was specifically thinking of the constitution recently passed in the new state of Oklahoma, which Taft regarded as a, quote, zoological garden of cranks, end quote. We'll get more into this later, but what Taft specifically didn't like was the ability for citizens to bring up initiatives and referendums and to recall judges. As a conservative and former judge himself, not to mention a future Supreme Court Chief Justice, Taft strongly disliked the idea of the rabble being able to recall judges. Historian David R. Berman says that Taft could tolerate democracy only if the courts were there to stop the majority from abusing their power. 
However, this view was about to run headfirst into the view of Arizona's staunchly progressive constitutional convention. And as we'll see, the new state didn't really heed his warnings. Wagner says that Taft's tacit support probably secured the passing of an enabling act, allowing Arizona to create a state constitution. There was still considerable opposition out there to this act, both in Congress and in the press. The American Review of Reviews sarcastically wrote, quote, It is now proposed at this very session of Congress to pass the magic wand over the desert sands of Arizona and over the adobe huts of the Spanish-speaking people of New Mexico. They will become full partners in that limited government at Washington which bought them for a song from Mexico and which ought to have dignity and firmness enough to keep them in their proper place of tutelage for perhaps 40 years yet to come. End quote. To understand why it took so long to get statehood and why it was so hotly contested, we need to look at the climate of the times. There was, of course, the political blaming on both sides, as the Democrats were accused of wanting to admit the two states because they thought their party would pick up seats in Congress. On the Republican side, Roosevelt and Taft were accused of helping in the push for statehood so TR could help out his old Rough Rider buddies, and Taft could point to the admission of the two states as an accomplishment of his administration ahead of the 1912 election. To be entirely honest, both sides kind of have a point, because let's face it, professional politicians are always looking for how something can be spun to their advantage. For a different take, however, we turn to Marcus Aurelius Smith, who had spent more than a decade now lobbying, cajoling, pushing, and glad-handing to make the territory a full-fledged state. To Smith, any opposition had nothing to do with the usual friction in America's two-party system. He would state in his last speech in Congress, quote, The opposition here and elsewhere to the admission of these states is not that they are Democratic or Republican, but solely and alone because they are Western, end quote. The Eastern elites didn't want the rough-and-tumble Western territories to join their nice little social club, Smith thought. But then he also engaged in a little geographical pride when he said that those Eastern elites were afraid that the congressmen and senators coming out of Arizona, be they from either party, would be fearless and plain-spoken. You can put as much stock in that last statement as you would like. I personally don't put that much. Lamar remarks how much the Arizona and New Mexico statehood debate really shows a classic pattern in American history, namely that those debates were swallowed up by the national issues happening at the time. Here we're talking about things like land policy and conservation, which were very important to Smith, and he spent most of his time in Congress fighting against the federal government's policies while advocating for statehood. In fact, at one point in early 1909, Smith even held up a statehood bill for two weeks to make sure that Arizona received a 60,000-acre land grant. Then there was the national debate over free silver, war, immigration, which we have touched on, and newer, thornier problems such as ballot initiatives, referendums, recalls, prohibition, and women's suffrage, which we will be touching on. Finally, Smith did have something of a point when it comes to the East versus West mentality. 
During this era, more conservative Republicans were clashing with an insurgent progressive wing inside their party. Also, there was a bias against the Southwest, with its Mexican roots and the mistaken impression that it was a trackless desert that no civilized person would want to live in. But Lamar also says what Congress, the press, and others didn't really get in all of this is that the people living in Arizona and New Mexico had really come to view their territorial status as a stigma hanging around their necks. He says they agreed with the comment made by New Mexico Governor L. Bradford Prince in 1902 that, quote, a territory with bad officials is despotism and not a republic. It is ruled by men named by an authority 2,000 miles away who are not responsible to any local instrument of power, end quote. So the people of the Southwest had to scratch, claw, fight, yell, stump, and lobby hard until the rest of the country was ready to come around to the idea that they were indeed ready for a seat at the table. The final legislative push started on January 14, 1910, with the introduction of a bill by Edward Hamilton, chairman of the U.S. House Committee on Territories, to admit Arizona and New Mexico as separate states. During the debates over this bill, new Arizona Congressional Delegate Cameron made his plea, mixed with a little bit of guilt-tripping, when he said there were 37,000 qualified voters in Arizona who were currently denied their inalienable rights to vote for the president of their own country. And just to twist the knife, he added, quote, It is a matter of history that Arizona has been knocking at the doors of Congress for many, many years and its just claims to recognition and inclusion in the sisterhood of states have met with scant consideration, notwithstanding the numerous promises and pledges of the two dominant parties. End quote. The House would pass the Enabling Act that month, but then it went into the Senate, where similar bills had gone to die in the past. And here things went a lot more slowly. Senator Beveridge, who you might remember as really being the villain from episode 159 that kept trying to defeat statehood or worse, combine Arizona and New Mexico, popped up again, delaying the bill for something like two months to insert a school lands clause that he liked. He would also come in toward the end and try to add language that would have forbidden anyone in the new states who didn't read or speak English to vote or hold office. However, proponents of the Enabling Act, who eyed the Hispanic voter bloc in New Mexico, managed to get those lines deleted. Finally, after all the debating and back-and-forth politicking was over, the bill was finally approved by the Senate on June 16, 1910, in a vote of 64 to 0, with 27 senators abstaining. The bill then went to Taft for his signature. The president would sign the bill, mainly because it contained a set of controversial clauses that reveal how much Congress wanted to keep a short leash on these little whelps who thought they could form states. One of these was that representatives to the constitutional conventions in both of the proposed states were to be chosen by county conventions rather than by a direct primary vote. This had actually been arranged by Republicans in Congress, consulting with their brethren in Arizona, because they believed the conventions would turn out a more conservative slate of delegates. This turned out to be the exact 
opposite of what happened, but we'll get to that. A second provision was that Congress and President Taft himself were to have approval powers over these state constitutions. This last provision was the most irregular and the most galling to many Arizona residents, including a certain politician from Globe about whom we'll have a lot more to talk about. However, despite these attempts of federal officials to put their thumbs on the scale and tip the balance of the eventual constitution in Arizona, the mood in the territory was jubilant. After so many years and so many attempts, they were finally allowed to try their hand at making themselves into a state. Nearly all my sources report some sort of celebration when the news of Taft signing the Enabling Act hit the wires. Early state historian James H. McClintock says that there were celebrations in pretty much every town across Arizona and New Mexico. We know that in Globe, the news was celebrated with almost everybody in town turning out for a parade and several speeches. Of all the celebratory traditions that have fallen by the wayside since this time, I think the inclusion of rounds of speeches for every special occasion is the one I don't miss. Of course, special celebrations were held in honor of Governor Sloan, Congressional Delegate Cameron, and Marcus Aurelius Smith for their dogged efforts in favor of statehood. Speaking of Cameron and Smith, in the aftermath of the news, both political parties in Arizona tried to claim the credit for finally getting the ball past the goal line. The Republican U.S. attorney in Bisbee declared proudly that Arizona should be eternally thankful to their current congressional delegate for securing the passage of the Enabling Act. He would say, quote, We promise you statehood if you would elect Cameron. You elected Cameron, and he has secured your statehood, and in so doing, the Republicans have fully kept their pledges, something that the democracy of Arizona, that is, the Democratic Party, did not do for 20 years. End quote. Meanwhile, the Democrats shot back, saying that they hadn't failed for 20 years. The Bisbee Review would opine that the party platform included statehood for Arizona for the past two decades, and party members in Congress had been working toward that goal the whole time. The major obstacle all along had been the Republicans. The Review would say, quote, Honorable Mark Smith succeeded in passing a statehood bill through the House, and the Republican Senate promptly killed the bill. End quote. Even now, Democrats argued, it was because of members of their own party, including Senator Joseph W. Bailey of Texas and Francis G. Newlands of Nevada, had done some savvy politicking and behind-the-scenes horse trading that passage of the bill was secured. No matter who got the credit, everyone agreed that they were more than ready. In September 1910, as convention delegates were being elected, Governor Sloan would publish an article in Sunset Magazine that was titled The 47th Star. In this article, the governor listed all the reasons that the territory deserved statehood. According to Sloan, Arizona would be the fifth largest state by land, and definitely the first in the production of copper. On top of that, he claimed that there was enough water to irrigate a million acres of land. Thank you, Roosevelt Dam, and Sorry to those on the Gila River Indian Reservation. And the population was above 200,000. There were 2,000 miles of railroad tracks, a good public school system, a territorial university, two normal schools, 60 newspapers and magazines, and the rule of law. 
the only thing that gave the Republican Sloan pause was that the convention would upset everything by writing a radical constitution that would prevent Arizona from finally getting its prize. Turns out that his fears were justified, though this didn't stop statehood so much as delay it, allowing the more conservative New Mexico to grab the 47th spot on the nation's roster. In the weeks following the passage of the Enabling Act, Sloan had set up an election to be held September 12, 1910, to elect the 52 men who would be convention delegates. Wagner says that the issues in this election were very straightforward. The electorate could choose men who would write a liberal constitution that could be hard to get past Congress and the president, or another group that would drop a conservative document that would breeze through the federal halls of power. Lamar says that the latter is the route that New Mexico went, with this convention being conservative, cautious, and very Republican. It denied women the right to vote, punted on the issue of prohibition, rejected most progressive ideas, and was virtually impossible to amend, he writes. However, Arizona was destined to go in the opposite direction as it was bursting out all over with progressive ideas, in Lamar's words. To understand why that is, we need to take a step back and look at some of the political trends in the territory. For this, I'm pulling mainly from Thomas Sheridan, who spends a lot of time talking about labor and the political pull that it began to exert. I plan to cover how labor unionized and organized in the early 20th century in a future episode as we cover strikes in the lead-up to the tragedy that is the Bisbee deportation. But the long and short of it is that they did unionize and organize and tried to wrest power away from their avowed mortal enemy, corporations. According to Sheridan, throughout the territorial period, these large corporations, often owned by Easterners, dominated territorial politics. Their one main goal was to keep their tax burden down, thus helping to maximize profits, and we touched on this before, how several governors tried to get the legislature to pass acts that would make sure the amount of reported tax revenue actually matched the value of land in use, usually with very little to show for their efforts. Railroad land in particular was often undervalued or untaxed, with some railroads being declared exempt from taxes for a period of 10 years. These sort of policies left small businesses and property owners holding the bag for the majority of the territory's tax burden, a situation they did not appreciate. But worst of all, these corporations could be shameless in bribing officials to enact favorable legislation or decide matters their way. George W.P. Hunt, that certain politician from Globe I referenced earlier, once said that a gubernatorial veto could be purchased for $2,000. In another example, someone apparently once marked the bribery money that Henry J. Allen, a representative for the United Verde Copper Company, used. These marked bills began to surface, and Allen tried to cover up by saying that he had spent the money to buy mules for the company. The more left-leaning residents of the territory began calling the session the Mule Legislature as a result. With the legislature being more or less unresponsive to the plight of the working man, organized labor began to conclude that there was no hope for relief while Arizona remained territory. 
But as labor leaders joined with populists and progressives in calling for statehood, they raised the specter of the democratic Arizona that Republicans in Congress, including Beveridge, feared so much. When the Enabling Act passed, labor became part of a larger coalition of forces that wanted to rein in corporations and ensure more power for the average voter. They were the largest part of this coalition with huge blocks of voters in predominantly mining districts such as Bisbee, Douglas, Globe, Miami, and the mining settlements scattered throughout Yavapai County. But there was serious talk at the time that maybe they didn't want to be just part of a coalition. Maybe labor leaders wanted to have their own unique voice to work on their issues. In fact, a group of engineers, machinists, carpenters, blacksmiths, and miners all met in Phoenix in July 1910 to discuss a potential platform for a proposed labor party. Potential tent poles for the labor party were things such as an eight-hour workday, workmen's compensation, abolishing child labor, and other laws that would make sure employers could be found liable for negligence. This was in addition to the call for initiatives, referendums, and judicial recall. For the Democrats, the possibility of a labor party was a horrifying thought. They saw this as a potential spoiler that would sap strength away from their own party and just hand elections over to the Republicans. Also, they had just weathered a potential split in their party after the rise of the populists and their nominating candidates such as Bucky O'Neill in the 1890s. That split mirrored a national one happening at the time between the establishment led by Grover Cleveland and the populist insurgency led by presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan. And this is really where we start seeing the calls for the ballot initiatives and referendums as a way for the people to make their voices heard and to get around what looked like an obstructionist legislature. Now, this group was at odds with the more old-school conservative members of the Democratic Party, who were led by men such as Marcus Aurelius Smith. Because Smith and his law partner were doing so much work for railroads and copper companies, they were derisively known as corporate Democrats. The two sides kept working together for now, but when labor began making noise about creating their own party, something needed to be done. One of those who stepped into this fray was George W.P. Hunt. Hunt is a new major character in our story, and given that he will be the state's first governor and be elected to a whopping seven terms, he is definitely not going anywhere for a while. But I'm going to hold off giving you a full sketch of the man because in a few weeks we're going to spend a whole episode talking about his life, times, and politics. For now though, you need to know that this politician from Globe had been in the territorial legislature off and on since the early 1890s and had built up a reputation for himself as a friend of labor. He also backed such radical bills as women's suffrage, banning corporations from paying employees in company script, and compulsory education for children. Sharp-eared listeners out there will also remember that I slipped Hunt into the podcast in episode 144, where he backed a bill in 1893 to up the bounty on the Apache Kid from $500 to $5,000. The irony there is that that bill was kind of out of character for the anti-violence Hunt. Anyway, Hunt was one of those who stepped up to help keep the Labor Party from forming and taking many Democrats with it. 
According to Sheridan, he and other party leaders would broker a deal with the unions. The labor side of the party would continue to back Democratic candidates on the condition that Arizona's Democratic Party would incorporate labor provisions into its platform. Crisis averted, it was time now for everyone to turn their attention to the upcoming convention and what kind of constitution exactly it would produce. And on that note, I'm going to leave things here for this week. But join me next week as the Democratic Progressive Populist Alliance is able to gain an overwhelming majority in the Constitutional Convention and proceed to craft exactly the type of document that Taft, Beveridge, and every other opponent of Arizona statehood feared. And at the head of the convention would be George W.P. Hunt, helping to write the extremely progressive pro-labor, pro-voter constitution that he had always wanted. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.